BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. We've got uh, a new German government. And I just, you know, I just wanted to point out that this new German government, at, at least finally they're referring to it as a center-left government. This is the, for the New York Times. For the first time in 16 years, Germany will have a center-left government and a new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, a social democrat. They've created a coalition with the Greens and with the Free Democrats, who are sort of like, you know, the, the they're sort of like the problem solvers caucus in the Democratic, you know, which spans both the Democratic and Republican parties. But basically, the Free Democrats are the ones who, who believe in neoliberalism. They're, they're the leftover neoliberals. Now, but they're sort of progressive. But we'll get to that. We've got a lot on our program today. We've got conversations with the great minds. David Pepper is going to be with us. He wrote a new book called Laboratories of Autocracy. And it's about basically what's happening in our state houses. If you think that Washington, D.C. is a mess, you ain't seen nothing yet. And you need to know about this. The average American can't identify who their state senator is or their state representative is. And that is working tremendously to the advantage of the autocrats in this country or the wannabe autocrats, the, the oligarchs. We'll get to that. But what's amazing is that this article by Katrine Benhold starts out, for the first time in 16 years, Germany will have a center-left government. Which raises the question, what the hell is center-left? I mean, Angela Merkel governed a country, Germany, for 16 years, that or for however many years it was, maybe they're abutting her with, some, you know, with another conservative. But in any case, I, I think it, it's probably her. In any case, uh, this is a country where if a woman wants an abortion during the first three months, the, the state pays for it. It's free. No questions asked. No big deal. You don't have to show up days apart. You don't have. So this, was a, this is a right-wing government, really? This is not a center-left government? Um, Angela Merkel's conservatives run a, run a country where every corporation with over a thousand employees is required to not only have a union, they're called works councils, but to have that works council make up half of their board of directors. And now for the first time in 16 years, they're getting a center-left government. This wasn't center-left. In Merkel's Germany, 
There is a minimum of 24 work days of paid vacation a year, 9 to 12 paid public holidays, 5 to 6 weeks of, uh, and, and, and most employers offer 5 or 6 weeks of paid holidays. It's, what's mandated is, is uh, you know, a, a minimum of 24 work days of paid vacation. Merkel's conservative Germany employers are required to pay 100% of salary for up to 6 weeks when somebody gets sick. If a person is disabled by the illness or injury in Merkel's Germany, this is the conservative according to the New York Times, uh, the employer has to pay a minimum of 70% of salary for up to 78 weeks. Merkel's conservative Germany has one of the best, most modern public transit systems in the world. Wealthy people pay a top income tax rate of over 50% in Germany. And by the way, you don't have to do your taxes. The government does your taxes for you and sends you the form. The only time you need to fill out anything or submit it to the government with regard to taxes in Germany is if you think they owe you money and you want to try and prove it. Angela Merkel, the, the person that the New York Times is telling us was not center left during the last 16 years, Angela Merkel invited one and a half million mostly Syrian almost all Muslim refugees into Germany all at once. One and a half million. That would be the equivalent of, of Joe Biden inviting 6.1 million non-white, non-Christian refugees into the United States. And she got applause for this. I, you know, it is, it is producing a little bit of tension right now, but she got applause for this. Here in the United States, we have 810 people out of every 100,000 Americans in prison or having been recently in prison. In Germany, it's 78 out of 100,000. Here, it's 810. In Germany, it's 78. When Angela Merkel became uh, chancellor of, of uh, Germany, there was not a minimum wage. Why? Because everybody was unionized, but she set one. The minimum standards now in Germany are that you get free health care, you have subsidized housing, you have up to $1,377 a month that the government gives you as a, quote, pension for low-income and retired workers. This is both their, their welfare program and their Social Security program. Free education all the way up to Ph.D. or M.D. In fact, there's over 300,000 people going, foreigners going to German schools for free, colleges for free. And a minimum wage of 11 bucks an hour which ain't bad if you don't have to pay for health care, you don't have to pay for education, you get subsidized subsidies for your housing. In fact, in 2014, Chancellor Merkel, who, who the New York Times is referring to as a conservative, pushed through a, a, a legislation that made all public college and universities in Germany tuition-free. All of them. She also pushed through a law in 2013 guaranteeing seven hours a day of free daycare and education for three to six-year-olds. And in many parts of the country, actually, you can qualify, your child could qualify if your child is over one year old. This is conservative? I mean, housing is a right in Germany. Legal residents are entitled to housing assistance in Germany. Owning a gun in Germany is like owning a car in the United States. This is the conservative country. It's like owning a car in the United States. You must pass both a proficiency test and a written test. You must get a license to own a gun. You must register it with the government every year. 
Assault weapons and weapons of war are banned? In conservative Merkel's Germany, they're shutting down their last nuclear power plant probably next year. And solar power costs half of what it costs here in the United States. And solar panels are everywhere. Here in the United States, your internet service provider can literally snoop on everything you do. They can read your email. They can, they can not just can, they do record every website you visit and sell that information to other people. In Germany, that's a felony. If an internet service provider tried to spy on Germans the way that the big internet service providers in the United States routinely spy on all of us, they would go to prison. Their drug prices here we've got drugs that you know are are you know cost two three dollars uh, to manufacture and are sold for ten twenty thousand dollars. I mean it's it's mind boggling. In Germany, here's what the federal law says: quote, the pharmacy sales price for prescription drugs is determined by adding a margin of three percent to the wholesale price, plus a fixed pharmacy service compensation of eight dollars and thirty five eight eight dot three five euros plus the value added tax. We have 60,000 untested chemicals in our homes and in our food supply in the United States that they don't have in Germany because they require the precautionary principle. And yet the New York Times is telling us that for the first time, Germany is getting a center-left government. What am I missing here? Anyhow, it's a fascinating time to be alive, is it not? So let me pick up your phone calls. I think Lance in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Lance, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, good afternoon. Hey, Tom, I just wanted to talk about you had played this clip from JFK, what it means to be a liberal. And that ties in so good with the Build Back Better program. So uh, let me let me just play Democrats. that for you, if you'd like. Play that clip. And, and, and we can talk yeah. about it. Here's uh, President John Kennedy. Actually, this was candidate John Kennedy. This was 1960. He was in New York City. I, I'm pretty sure he was speaking before the Liberal Club or the Liberal Party in New York City. Here he is. What do our opponents mean when they apply to us the label liberal? If by liberal they mean, as they want people to believe, someone who is soft in his policies abroad, who is against local government, and who is unconcerned with the taxpayer's dollar, then the record of this party and its members demonstrate that we are not that kind of liberal. But if by a liberal they mean someone who looks ahead and not behind, someone who welcomes new ideas without rigid reactions, someone who cares about the welfare of the people, their health, their housing, their schools, their jobs, their civil rights and their civil liberties, someone who believes that we can break through the stalemate and suspicions that grip us in our policies abroad, if that is what they mean by a liberal, then I'm proud to say that I'm a liberal. There you go, John Kennedy. So, Lance, you were you you had a riff based on that uh, little speech, or that little piece of that speech. Yes, that speech is awesome because when you think of that speech and think about how Biden tried to pass the Build Back Better program, they go together, and this is something the Democrats should push because of. A lot of times their messages are not getting out there because, unfortunately, Republicans are very good by getting their messages out. 
so and the Democrats are playing catch up, but they need to run on that clip because it is so timely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Lance, thank you. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to play that. It's been a while. Thank you very much. Let's see here. Steve in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's up? Well, I have my customized things that I'm thankful for, and I believe that you and your audience will share it. I've been advised to make it short. So here are some of the things I'm thankful for. Nurses, doctors, teachers, ethical first responders, frontline workers like grocery store workers, Black Lives Matter, and all activists on behalf of voting rights, the environment, fair elections, anti-war, anti-Pedagon, and reproductive rights activists. I'm thankful for the prosecutors and law enforcement and investigators who are going after the Trump cult insurgent criminals. I'm thankful for school board members who stand up to the MAGA cult, the censors. I'm grateful for the volunteers at abortion clinics who protect doctors and women from attacks. I'm grateful to Mother Nature, evolutionary biology, and the Big Bang, because without those, none of us would be here. And finally, I'm thankful for progressive talk show hosts and their staffs, especially the ones who are superior to all others. I will leave it to you to figure out who I'm talking about. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Uh, it's a great list, I, and I'm thankful for, for you and, and all of our listeners and, and viewers, uh, you know, people who, who help support this program. It's a great time to be thankful, and, and Steve, thank you. That, that, that is an absolutely marvelous list. Chelsea in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Chelsea, what's on your mind today? Hi. I wanted to talk about the relationship between the Build Back Better and COVID denial. Workers have been conditioned for decades to believe that there is no personal health emergency or, you know, death in the family that is significant enough to be worthy of them missing work. And so I think that really laid the groundwork for suspicion when we had the COVID epidemic and suddenly they're being told, well, you're probably not going to even die from this, but, you know, we're going to shut everything down. And yeah. I think that that laid the space for the conservatives to come in with their conspiracies. And similarly, I think that by allowing pharmaceutical companies like specifically Purdue Pharma to overtly lie and to convince doctors to overtly lie to patients about the safety of medications, okay. Again, you you know, you've got if you look at the areas where COVID denial is the worst, it is a very close overlap over the areas that Purdue Pharma targeted. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And so I think that the infrastructure bill actually is going to improve our outlook going forward, you know, for if we have another emergency like this, because we won't be so conditioned to you know, mistrust, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. And, and you make a good case for it, Chelsea. I would add that, you know, we, we have significant foreign interference here. And you've got Donald Trump having been all over the map because at the beginning of the pandemic, he was like, OK, we're going to, you know, I'm going to be the, the president and do something about this. And then on April 7th, when he discovered it was mostly killing black people and in blue states, he, he decided enough of this already and started worrying about the economy and getting reelected. And, and, and so we've had these schizophrenic messages. It's been a real mess. But Chelsea, thank you. That, that's a great analysis. I, you know, you, you can make a living as a political analyst. That was a good one. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening.
listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to our program. This is a uh, deep dive of uh, conversations with great minds with a lawyer, writer, political activist, former elected official, adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party between 2015 and 2021. David Pepper, Laboratories of Autocracy, is the title of his new book, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. And uh, he's also the author of The People's House, the thriller that predicted the Russia scandal. Uh, David, welcome to the program. And thank, thank you. you for, th yeah, and thank you for joining us. So just to establish the large frame here, what specifically are the laboratories of autocracy? And uh, I'm assuming that that phrase goes back to the laboratories of democracy reference to the individual states. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. And, and we, we've sort of thought about it. And Brandeis is the famous uh, justice who wrote that quote. But for, for you know, in, in somewhat of a idealistic way we've often thought about states as laboratories of democracy we know that that, that actually has happened over the years you know in, in the long history of our country you know or, or in more recent past whether it's massachusetts leading partly to obamacare or the or states leading to the end of of you know to, to leading into marriage equality uh but my book flips that and says you know there's also a pretty terrible past where states have served the exact opposite role. And we, we know that that's how Jim Crow began. Uh, and we're seeing it more lately that, that states, as much as they can play a positive role in the wrong hands, can actually, they have enough power in our constitution and our overall system that in the wrong hands, uh, that they can actually do great damage. Uh, and, and in many ways, and I go through this in the book, states are, uh, because they're not as well known, because they are, you know, variety of reasons I get into the book. They're actually sort of the Achilles' heel of American governance, and a lot state of people in recent years, state legislatures, yeah, in particular. Sorry, uh, you know, no one knows who these people are. Like, there, there's a lot more corruption there. Uh, well, people like the Koch brothers and Alec and others have figured out that if you want to do damage and you want to undermine democracy, but also get your, you know, quote unquote, economic liberty agenda implemented. You go to states because no one even knows it's happening, and you don't you don't get uh, the the pushback you might get at other levels. 
And between gerrymandering and voter suppression and corruption and other things, these states in the last decade have really become these very extreme places that, as I put in the book, are really functioning as laboratories because what they've done in, in the setup now is it's not like each one is working on its own. All around the country, they're sharing what they're doing. They're learning from each other's mistakes. They're accelerating as they do so. So it, it is truly you know, 180 degrees from the laboratories of democracy model where these states are just hacking away at, at basically what, what most of us would just describe as a functional, healthy democracy. And the real risk is, and the founders even understood this, that these states have enough power over our national democracy that they can actually undermine it as well. And we're seeing that happening at breakneck speed right now around the country. So it's it's a pretty bleak, you know, thesis, but it's 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 I think very accurate as to what's happening. And and laboratories I think captures more than anything how they're operating, where they're really working together in tandem and without any accountability, they just keep plugging away one year at a time, one month at a time. And it's obviously happening right now at a great speed. So how much of this is being driven by uh, ideologues within the Republican Party? And, and I guess probably we should define, you know, autocracy here. Um, but right. in fact, let's do that first. And then my question subsequent to that would be how much of this is being driven by the party versus how much of it is being driven by outside organizations like the so-called Koch network and and, uh, you know, and all these, uh, you know, these state policy groups and things like that. Right. So what I, let me just, I'll get to the second part first. Um, I think it started much more in the hands of partisans like Karl Rove. A lot of this goes back to 2010 and nine when, when, you know, Democrats were celebrating, you know, the new era and Obama was just elected and the demographics were on our side. And Karl Rove was in a room plotting out every state house seat he needed to win to control the, this gerrymandering process in 10. And I think that was more... Now, Now other groups had started to do their work in state houses, but it was the, the partisan effort to gerrymander in 10 really sort of put, put the screws on state houses in a way that made them much less democratic than they'd been. At that point, I think the ALEX, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and other organizations of the world who reflect sort of right-wing economic interests they figured out, oh, my gosh, like state houses are where it's at. That's where we can get it done. And I think that's when the, the, the sort of the, the political effort to control state houses really went on steroids as these state these national organizations really got their knee hooks into state houses across the country. So now I think a lot of it is being driven by those economic groups. You know, the Heritage Foundation was caught on tape not long ago, bragging about all its voter suppression uh, guidance that's being implemented in these states. You know, ALEC is very active. So now it's far beyond, you know, the, the chairwoman of the RNC. It's really, you know, being driven by, by, you know, the political interests, but also by these economic interests. So the way I talk about autocracies, I don't think I also, you know, and some may not agree with this. I don't think the goal, again, was necessarily to, to start creating autocracy in America when when, when this began 10, 15 years ago and accelerated. But the lesson in our, in our own history and other countries' history is if you tear enough, if you tear away enough at the protections for democracy in a country or in a state, that country can slip very quickly into 
different forms of autocracy, whether it be like the strongman rule or or what's now being you know termed competitive autocracy, where like Hungary, you have what looks like a democracy, but everything's rigged in a way that that Orban will never lose. And I, the risk here is that we have enough things happening in states, you know, again, extreme gerrymandering, voter suppression, attacks on independent courts, attacks on sectors of state, a lot of other things, too, that enough of these things that are basically protect democracy are being torn away, that in the not-too-distant future, if certain things happen, you could, we could find ourselves looking a lot more like Hungary than most of us, except for Tucker Carlson, apparently, want us to. So, uh, it, it really, I, I think it's a sort of a matching of political interests with these economic interests. And also, you know, there's no doubt that we have a ugly history in our country of white supremacy, where there's, whenever a diverse electorate looks like it's sort of running the country, which happened after Obama won and happened when, when African Americans all across the country helped elect Biden, there's a really, you know, fierce backlash and I think that's another thing that's dovetailing together with these other forces to, to create what we're seeing right now in our country. So uh, to, to boil that down, um, it, it, tell me if you would agree with this statement that, that sometime around 2010, Karl Rove and some of the political geniuses around him, and I, and I, and I use that word not meaning it to be ironic, um, realized that demographic change was happening in America Actual political change, you know, in terms of what Americans want from their government, the, the era right. of neoliberalism, you know, at that point it had been 30 years of Reaganism. The American middle class had gone from being two-thirds of Americans to fewer than half of Americans in the middle class. Unionization had been gutted. Um, the, you know, so Americans were starting to figure out the giant con that Reagan had run on them. And Republicans were starting to lose elections in big ways. And America was changing in a way that would favor the Democrats. And so Karl Rove and his friends got together and said, we've got to figure out how to establish minority rule, particularly Correct. in these swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, te what, te what will become te Texas is now, you know, white people are now a minority in Texas, for example. Um, in these states, we've got to figure out a way that a small number of Republicans can control the politics of a state that has a larger number of Democrats in it. Is that the essence of, of, of where this began? Yeah, and it's and it's getting more extreme. And, and, you know, in the book Dark Money, for example, which I cite, you know, the Koch brothers know their agenda is unpopular. They know that in a robust democracy, what they want, which is running down, you know, public assets and privatizing everything and some of the other things you talked about would lose. And so, yeah, they they are working overtime to protect against robust democracy, where the majority that wouldn't put up with all their policies would actually say, you know, no. So, yeah, I think it's that that's clearly what they see. It's not just demographics, though. It's also the the actual popularity of the of the opposing agendas. You know, most if you whether it's doing something about climate change, you know, a broad middle class economy versus a, a, a trickle down economy, whether it's common sense gun reform on issue after issue after issue, you know, one side, the vast majority, you know, 55, 60, 65 percent agree with with one side and 30 or 35 agree the other side. Well, that 30 or 35 knows that. So they're working very hard to lock in power so they can accomplish an agenda that, again, would be voted out 
if if you had a robust democracy. That's clearly the goal here, yeah, long term. The, the vast majority of Americans would like free college for everyone, like everybody, like most people in Europe have, or Canada, or free, right. you know, a low-cost health care system, you know, like Medicare for Correct. All Canada has. Yeah, spot on. We're talking with David Pepper, his new book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. So, David, how granular is our knowledge um, about where and when this shift within the GOP? I, you know, I think in some ways you could argue that all, all the way back to Nixon's Southern strategy that, you know, it was right. uh, although although white people were a majority then. So it, it's hard to describe that as a minority, you know, a takeover by the minority. But it was a hardening of the political system, let's say, to, to keep out you know, people that the Republicans saw as a threat. But at what point did it become obvious to Republicans that they were going to start losing elections, that they were, uh, uh, you know, going to become an, uh, kind of a, 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 an artifact of history? Um, and, and what specifically did they do? I mean, I, again, how granular is our knowledge of that? Is, was there a moment? Was there a meeting? Was there, or, you know, how, what do we know about this? I mean, I don't know if there was a moment. I, I think the Obama election um, was a wake-up call in a huge way. Um, one, that you saw the decisiveness of it. You know, Ohio was blue. Indiana was blue. It, it, and you saw this diversity of America come together to elect him. And I think that if there wasn't already a wake-up call, that was it. Um, and then it's only grown from there. One, one of the things I write about in the book is uh, – as much as I, I think that they meant to create this warped democracy in 11 after gerrymandering, I don't think they, they actually thought through just how warped politics would get. And here, here's, a, here's a bleak reality. We now are living at the end of the first generation of state house majorities across this country who themselves have never been through democracy. I mean, I'll be, I go through the book. They literally, like, the majority of your House State House, you know, about 60 members out of 99, have, uh, have not literally been in basic what we would consider elections themselves. Outside it's of all primaries. guaranteed. Yeah, out, and, and only some are in primaries. So they win 6,000 votes in some primary no one's paying attention to, normally by being extreme. That sometimes they're appointed, so they don't even have a primary. And that's the last time they've ever faced the voters. So these are people who literally their entire political existence has been essentially devoid of democracy. And the smart ones have figured out, like the Koch brothers realized, geez, if we were ever in a real election, we would lose. We're too extreme. Our public outcomes are disastrous on, on almost any way you can measure. And I go through that in Ohio. Um, and we, you know, a lot of us are corrupt. We would never win. So we literally have, and this is why it's accelerating so quickly, we have a generation of people who are in charge. They have the levers of power in their hands who themselves have not really lived in a democracy, ascended through a democracy, and they know a democracy would probably mean they're out of office. They, they are now the ones doing the gerrymandering, which is all they've ever known, and doing all the voter suppression. So they're not connected to a democratic system. And I think that that is warping things way beyond even what people intend might, you know, might have thought would happen. You know, it's, it's why we have these crazy laws on everything from, you know, in Texas, it's the, it's the abortion ban and that suing people. And, you know, it's crazy laws around almost everything that are so far from what the average person wants. But I think that's what you get 
when you essentially don't have democracy or accountability in state after state. And I think that's way beyond what those in 11 thought would happen. Yeah, and, and it's becoming vividly obvious. We're talking with David Pepper, his new book, Laboratories of Democracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. And we will be right back. Stick around. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. And welcome back. We're talking with David Pepper. He is the author of a, a new book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. David, you were talking just a moment ago about how in state houses all across the United States, and particularly in red states, but, but really because, you know, the most states have become so gerrymandered, even those that haven't been gerrymandered, just this kind of self-selection. I mean, our, uh, even our schools now are more segregated than they were in 68. And it's obviously not just racial, there's economic and all these other, other things. But, but basically, most of the people who are in state governments all around the country, or at least a sizable number of them, have literally never faced the voters in a meaningful way. If they can get past the primary or get appointed by their state party to run for, for office as a Republican or as a Democrat in, in some states, um, although it's, this is not a problem within the Democratic Party, um, they are pretty much guaranteed that they're going to get elected. So they just, you know, go along with the corruption and, and give, you know, the people who are paying the piper whatever they want. Um, correct me if I mischaracterize that. Um, no, that's that's it. Okay. That's what's happening. And, and, go ahead. Sorry. So, so the my follow-on question to that is um, twofold. Number one, you, you said that you didn't think that these folks, when they started this extreme gerrymandering to produce this outcome, were trying to do away with democracy in America. They were just trying to bend it a little bit so that they could retain power. But now we're looking at the possibility that this could be, you know, this could be the trip, the tripwire for the end of democracy in America. What are these people telling themselves? What's the story that they tell themselves? You know, is, is it that, you know, oh, it's so important to stop abortion that, you know, it doesn't matter if we defy the will of the voters or it's so important to protect the economy from things like communism and socialism by increasing taxes on rich people that that even though other people, you know, want it or don't want it or what. I mean, what what story are they telling them? How do they justify this? 
I think at the highest levels of sort of the ideology, it's it's literally, you know, and, and people like Peter Thiel and the Koch brothers, I think, express it, which is that that a robust democracy is contradicts their view of economic liberty. That if 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 everyone votes and everyone votes in, in a fair way, that they will get their money taken away uh, by regulation or taxes or something else. So I think at the, at that level, that is that is how they think about it, and that's why locking in power to allow you know the people they put in to do what they're doing um you know is is critical to holding back the will of the broader electorate which wouldn't stand for you know what we're seeing around the top 0.1% getting most of the money or everything else we're seeing that that economically in other ways just doesn't serve the broader interest so that's how the billionaires so, yeah, are think thinking I, about it but what about the legislators yeah, it, it, I think the legislature, I think it's, I mean, I hate to say it, like, I just think most of them are happy to be in power, and they want to keep it that way. They're I really, the gravy train. Yeah, they're, they're happy to be there. For many, it's the best eight years in Ohio. We have an eight-year term. It's the best eight years you're ever going to get, and I go through it. Like, it, it, what's ironic about it all is now that it's been, you know, basically, I think these national groups saw that these state houses are the Achilles heel of American governance. And they moved in to basically take them over. That's what they're doing. For them, those individual office holders are largely irrelevant. Those, those, those state house people, they cycle through every eight years. They do precisely what the incentive structure would have them do. You know, public outcomes don't matter if, you, if you're guaranteed reelection. So you could have failing schools and you can have small towns or big cities dying and no infrastructure and no health care. It doesn't matter. You get reelected. The way you, you, you risk getting reelected is if you're not extreme enough or if you don't satisfy those private interests. So these state house members are basically just performing exactly how these in- incentives would have them perform. And so I don't think they're thinking about it except for for most of them at least. Hey, it's eight good years. I get to I get to do this, and then yeah. maybe I get to be a state senator. Or it's all self interest. Uh, yeah, I get it. Hang on just a second, dude. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. It always steps on me here. We're talking with David Pepper, the author of the new book Laboratories of Autocracy: A Wake Up Call from Behind the Lines. We are talking with David Pepper, a, uh, an attorney, a writer, a political activist, former elected official, adjunct professor of, of law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, uh, served as the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party from 2015 to 2021. His new book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. And uh, David, we've been talking about how how basically uncompetitive, non-competitive uh, state houses, state house and senate, or whatever they're called, you know, assemblies or whatever, uh, in various states are. How 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 essentially easy it is to corrupt them, and how corrupted so many of them have be- have become. Um, I'm I'm wondering, you know, you 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 lay out in the book how, and I want to get into Ohio in just a moment, but you lay out in the book how, and and you were just talking about how, you know, Karl Rove and a bunch of these guys after the Obama phenomenon in 2008 and 2010 kind of rocked their world, decided we've got to figure out a way to stay in power over the long term here. 
but their goal was not to end democracy in America and turn us into a, an autocratic state like Hungary or Russia or something like that. Um, you know, their, their goal was simply to have us, we're the good guys in power. Um, are they right. in this era of Trump, when we've got a, a guy who wants to be president again and was for four years, who clearly has autocratic, not just tendencies, I mean, embraces uh, autocracy almost like a religion. I mean, the, you know, they were the first country he visited as president was Saudi Arabia, for God's sake. Is that causing anybody in the Republican Party outside of uh, maybe Liz Cheney to, 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 to look at this and go, holy crap, what have we created here? You know, my guess is with with some it is, but but I will say I've been stunned by the cowardice of almost all these people. I think I think they they probably recognize it some of them more than we do because they've been in rooms with this guy um, and they see it. But but you know, and Ohio Senator Rob Portman is sort of a case study. He just they won't they don't have the courage, and and we we learn from. You know, over the years, that that not having courage, even if you think you're a good person, you're as dangerous as the person who's not a good person, because you 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 put up with the same stuff, and in some cases, you provide cover to the worst of people. And so, I my guess is there's some concern about it. Um, a few people have sort of raised their hands and said they don't want to be part of it. But by the way, even people who are attacking Trump are willing to be critical of him. They're still not voting protect voting rights in the Congress or the Senate. And it's like, you know, Mitt Romney, for example. And, and to me right now, if you – the test, as I put in my book, this is bigger than Trump. This started before Trump. It's going to outlast Trump. This is, this is like the onset of Jim Crow. And if everyone had just run around for decades talking about Andrew Johnson, they would have missed what Jim Crow was really doing. And that's true with Trump. Now, Trump is very dangerous. But what's happening in these state houses, if it's cemented in place – will be as dangerous if, if Trump doesn't run in 24 as if, it, as if he does, because they can do the same thing, whoever's running. They can undermine the, electro, the, the, the choosing of electors. They can continue gerrymandering. The danger is that undemocratic state houses uh, with no accountability can breed autocracy regardless of who the, the autocrat wannabe is. And so that's why I actually think we need to, you know, I, we should cover the Trump outrages, yes, but, but we shouldn't let this be only about Trump. For example, this started long before the big lie. And people like to say, well, these state houses are acting crazy because of the big lie. No, no, they are continuing a decade of attacking democracy that began before Trump even started running, let alone became president. So th this is bigger and more dangerous than just Donald Trump himself. Um, and and that's that sounds dramatic, but it, it's it's the case. Just like, by the way, I, I get I get worried as much as I'm offended every day by Lauren Boebert and Gosar. These other goofballs are horrible people. There are hundreds of people just like them in state houses in the majority passing laws. Those people are more dangerous than the current minority members of Congress who are so offensive. But we aren't focused on those people. We're focused too much on the ones in D.C. So. I, I wor the reason I wrote this book, and I wrote it, I'll admit, kind of frantically in a number of months, is I think too much of America, including the media, is focused on the wrong problem. Uh, we need to focus on those problems, too. But the bigger threat is cementing in undemocratic state houses around the country. And we learn from Jim Crow, once that's in place, it can take generations to undo it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I laid out a piece of this 
in, in my book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, that uh, what we're seeing right now in some ways is uh, using an old template. In the 1830s in the South, when the, when the cotton gin was widely available, uh, among the very wealthy plantations, you know, it, it, it first became available around 1810, and by 1830, and because it was, you know, one one machine could do the work of 50 enslaved people, and and but it was very expensive, and so only the big plantations could afford it. They ended up buying all the small plantations. You ended up with the southern states being controlled by basically about a thousand families. Newspapers that spoke of abolition were put out of business. People, uh, newspapers that spoke in, 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 in opposition to any of these policies were put out of business. The, the press was censored. If, if people stood up uh, you know, in opposition to, and not just slavery, but also the, the, the system that was, uh, you know, the, the sharecropping system that was destroying poor white farmers, the small white farms that couldn't compete with the giant plantations. When they spoke out, their houses would be burned, they would be murdered, their children would be disappeared. I mean, we had political violence in this country between 1830 and 1860 in the South that was insane. I mean, it was it was in some ways like Nazi Germany. I mean, not not quite as extreme, but it was it was not a democracy here in the United States. Right. And what right. concerns me is that so much of what is going on right now is being done by people waving Confederate flags. Is it that they don't know this history or that they're trying to repeat it? Yeah. And, and the other parallel is it, Jim Crow did not come from congressional legislation. It came through state houses, and, and it, that's where you get it done. But that's also once it's in place in state after state, and as I write, as the title suggests, laboratory photography, they're all mimicking each other. Once it's written into state law across the country, that's why it's so much harder to undo, especially if you have a federal court system that refuses to protect rights when states attack those rights. So there are a lot of parallels in history. I, a lot of the parallels I draw are again, to the onset of Jim Crow. You know, in, in the 1870s, you had very high levels of black registration in the South. You had black mayors and sheriffs and statehouse members and speakers. And in only a matter of several decades, a combination of the violence you mentioned, a combination of attacks on voting rights based on theories of, quote, voter fraud, added up. All those voters were deregistered. All of a sudden, you have a century of Jim Crow and no more black officials for generations. So there's a lot of parallels here. And I, again, I worry, especially as I watch Congress not stepped up to protect voting rights and democracy, I worry that people just aren't looking at either the history in our own country or other countries. Again, if one side is you know, relentlessly attacking democracy and the other side doesn't fight back, the one side wins. Yeah. And, and in America, the way you fight back more than any other place is with federal legislation protecting democracy in states. When they failed to do that at the end of the 1800s against Jim Crow, after several decades of trying, you know, Ulysses Grant stood up to this stuff. But the minute the federal government stopped resisting attacks on democracy, that's when those attacks won. And right now, I just worry that you know one side is relentlessly at work every day, ripping away. And again, this isn't just voting rights laws. It's the gerrymandering. It's attacks on protesters. It's attacks on on you know constitutional rights like the right to choose that we're seeing. All attacks on the media, all attacks on independent courts, which is happening all around the country at the state level. You add all these all up. If if it was another country doing all those things, 
we would literally probably issue sanctions and say, hey, that country is no longer democracy. It's happening in our own state houses, and because it's in America, we, we aren't as urgent about as we should be. So it, it's a really scary parallel to, to what you mentioned as well as to what, what led to Jim Crow. Yeah. And you have to step up to it or it will succeed. Yeah, and let's not forget, you know, the, what led to Jim Crow in a huge way was you know, the, the election of 1876, <laughs> where, right. you know, where the candidate who lost the Electoral College and lost the popular vote ended up president. And the deal that they made was just, you know, stab African-Americans in the back. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Hang on just a second. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. And that was because the election got thrown to the House, which is what Trump tried to do. We're talking with David Pepper, his book, Laboratories of Autocracy. Welcome back. So, David, how many states are we talking about here that are severely corrupted at this point? I mean, I, I don't put an exact number on the book, but I'd say we're talking, you know, several dozen. Um, and and the, the risk is that they grow. I mean, one of the things that, that, that happens, and, and again, I, I think Democrats are figuring it out, but, but years too late, when Republicans gain a state that's when they really sink their teeth into it, and the state sort of rarely reverts back. When Democrats gain a state, like Virginia, Republicans keep going for it, and like we just saw, can win it. So, you know, Ohio, just to be clear, we voted for Obama twice. We had a Democratic state house as recently as 2010. We had 10 out of 18 members of Congress in 2010 were Democrats. But what Republicans do is once they win, they, they, go, they go to war to get rid of the coalition that allowed Ohio to be blue, for example, and then it makes it that much harder to gain it back. So they're sort of, I think, except for the demographics that are going the other way, when they grab a state like Missouri or Ohio, like they don't let go. And too often, I don't think we have the same mindset. And so the risk is that it, it, it sort of they broaden the number of states where you basically no longer have Democratic rule. And we simply fight for it in certain swing states and presidential elections. They're always on offense. We're on defense sometimes. So the worry is it just keeps growing. Um, right. And so it's in a lot of states and enough to do the damage. And he, some of the states that I point to that, that are really, you know, stick out is you know, Michigan and Wisconsin vote for Democrats right now. They literally voted in, in Wisconsin, Michigan. They voted for Democrats pretty decisively for their state house as across the state in Michigan, Wisconsin, 2018. But the gerrymandering and other types of suppression, especially gerrymandering in those states created large majorities in the state house for Republicans, even as Democrats actually outvoted Republicans by good amounts. So you literally have them continuing to control states that, that for the most part, are blue states. And that gets back to the minority rule that you mentioned. And that, that's literally a system that Putin would admire. Wow, the voters voted, you know, 55-45 for Democrats in Wisconsin, but the, the, the state house is a supermajority Republican. Way to go, guys. I mean, that's literally what Orban and Putin create in their countries. 
And we have it right here in states that we think about as, as swing or even blue. You mentioned uh, the demographic changes. The largest uh, population growth in the United States over the last two decades has been in, a, in the Hispanic population. And while we've got 1,500 right-wing English-speaking uh, radio stations across the country, and I think this is a huge factor, frankly, in, in this, yeah. um, we have gone from a handful to several hundred right-wing Spanish language stations. There's, there, there have emerged a whole bunch of little right-wing Rush Limbaugh's. This completely seems to be off the radar screen of the Democrats. We have about 10 yeah. seconds before the break. Do you see the Democratic Party waking up to what the hell's going on here? Because the Republicans are going after these folks. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they, they understand what you just said. But again, you start late and you I just don't think Democrats still, and, and Jamie Harrison's a friend, he's trying to, we're not thinking about this as a 50-state fight for democracy. We're still too focused on presidential cycles and swing states in those cycles. That's too narrow a battlefield for us if we're going to win. Did Howard Dean have it right? Yeah, I mean, I think the 50-state strategy, you have to do that. Not because you're going to win every state, but you got to fight for democracy everywhere, especially knowing that they're fighting against it in all 50 states. Amen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with David Pepper. Uh, David, you were the chairman of the Ohio, and his new book is uh, Laboratories of Autocracy. You were the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party for uh, six years, uh, you know, up until uh, up until this year, I guess. Um, yeah. You mentioned briefly Ohio just a moment ago. If you could kind of recap that, and in the roughly five minutes I think we have left here in the program, uh, give us an. You use Ohio throughout the book as an example of what's going right. on. Tell us what's what's mm -hmm. what do we need to know about Ohio, and how does that inform us about the Republican strategy overall across the country? So my best summary of Ohio is we we certainly lean a little red and have for generations, but I would say we're much more of a rigged state than a red state. Uh, after Obama won, turning Ohio blue at eight and twelve, we literally had a Democratic state house, a Democratic majority in our congressional delegation. The Rep and they're doing this around the country right now in Georgia and Texas and Florida. They literally picked the exact ways that the diverse coalition that, that elected Obama voted and targeted those means of voting as where they would suppress the vote. Early vote, young voters they tried to go after, brutal uh, purging of voters. And that's the pattern. Whenever you know, Whether it's drop boxes now or early voting, different states, in Ohio they knew why they had lost – Again, they lost the state house too, and that really honked them off because they had gerrymandered for themselves in 2001. So they immediately got to work saying, okay, the coalition that turned Ohio blue, we're going to crush it. And we're going to use our government power to make it so it can't win again. And it, it worked. And again, that gerrymandering was just the beginning of it. It was all these other laws. And one of the lessons of Ohio is once you have a gerrymandered system, even when, when there, it means there's no accountability. So what they did throughout the decade was they failed again and again on these efforts. They would get struck down or they would, they would get referendums or something. They would just keep going and going and going because they could never be voted out of office because of gerrymandering. So over the course of a decade, they managed to take a state that, again, it Ob elected Obama twice at a Democratic state house and make it harder and harder for Democrats to win. That's the model. And they're, they're doing it elsewhere. And again, because of gerrymandering means they can never lose, they can keep doing it through thick and thin. They are doing things that if a mayor tried it or even a member of Congress in a swing district tried it, they would get voted out of office. But because they're in a state house, 
they never lose. And so, you know, what you see is this slow grinding down of a, of a robust democracy in a state like Ohio. Again, where now most of these state house members, like it's a stretch to call them elected officials. They're essentially appointed and reappointed and reappointed. They don't really think about themselves in that way. But if you look, and I go through this in the book, if you look at the details of how these people emerge to power, they essentially, again, they have not really lived through a democratic system. Their, their ascent has been through the party. They, they're afraid of the voters. They're afraid of, you know, I, I, I testified the other day to the state house and said to them, what are you guys so afraid of? Why are you so afraid of voters? And I think the answer is they actually, the ones who are smart, know that they would lose if they actually right. face the real so, voters. So, David, we have about doing. a minute and a half left. What <laughs> seems way too short for this question. What right. can Democrats do to try to salvage democracy in Ohio and across the country? Okay, so this is it's going to sound like a cheap plug, but in my book, I don't just go on about the problems. I lay out 30 steps that we can all take to fight back. I wrote the book so we fight back. Not, I don't want to accept. Give me the, this. Give me the top it, line. Well, the top line is the Senate it has to act. Okay, so the federal government has to protect against these attacks. That is essential. So but drill a hole in the filibuster Mitchell. for the Voting Rights Act. Absolutely. The filibuster has no place here. This is attacking its democracy. The founders would be appalled if you said a filibuster would block protecting democracy. But uh, you know, we have to rethink our politics to be a 50-state pro-democracy strategy, not only swing states in presidential years. But then I go through the specific ways that every single voter can get involved. You know, know who your state house people are. Every single year is an election about democracy, not just the federal years. Um, Register, register, register. There, we should all incorporate into our daily mission statement. We are going to support democracy, whether you run a nonprofit, a homeless shelter, if you're a mayor. Use the footprint you control, even if it's just your own personal life, to get people engaged in the political system. The whole point of what they're doing is to get people disengaged, to give up in all but a few states. You, every single person listening, and I hope you'll read the book as it goes through the details, Every single person can play a role in fighting back for democracy. That's how John Lewis won over the years. That's the other big thing. It's a long game. Don't let individual cycles mean that you, you just give up because you didn't win one cycle. It's a long game. So whether you're a state house candidate, a gerrymandered district, you're Stacey Abrams, you fell short 18, but you kept fighting, or an individual voter, don't give up. Keep fighting. So I go through all that in the book, and there are a lot of case studies where we have succeeded, including in Ohio, in other places, despite some really long odds in specific races where we succeeded in protecting democracy. So there, there's still hope. Time is running short, but get involved and, and do what you can to fight for democracy in whatever corner of the world you live in. We have 30 seconds. This is, oh, I guess we don't. <laughs> okay. David Pepper is the author. The book is Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. Uh, David, thank you for being our, our great mind for our conversations with great minds today. I really appreciate it. Great talking with you. Thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate it. And good luck with the book. I, I, I wish you the very best. Authors are my favorite people. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport, as David was just pointing out. Get out there, get active, get registered to vote. Find out who represents you in your state house and your state senate. Start following them. Start interacting with them. Get active. Tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 